Robert Half Research indicates 9 out of 10 hiring managers are having difficulty hiring. If you have open roles, chances are you're feeling this too. That's why you need Robert Half. Our specialized recruiting professionals engage with our proprietary AI to connect businesses of all sizes with highly skilled talent in finance and accounting, technology, marketing and creative, legal, and administrative and customer support. At Robert Half, we know talent. Visit roberthalf.com today. We are now into day six of Russia's assault on Ukraine. Many innocent people have been killed. Hundreds of thousands have been forced to flee. And the threat of nuclear warfare has been invoked. In the grand scheme of things, it seems trivial to talk about soccer. But the global game offers a global perspective of the unfolding geopolitical crisis, as well as the effect of power and money as a propaganda tool. And I'm joined by the very best, uh, AP's Rob Harris, uh, to discuss the latest developments. And Kigo Lasso begins right now. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Kigo Lasso. Thank you so much for being part of the family. Kigo Lasso pod on Twitter, YouTube, of course, and wherever you listen to your pods. Thank you so much for being with us. And returning to the show is the very busy uh, and one of the best out there, uh, my friend Rob Harris. Rob, how are you, sir? How are you doing? Oh, good. Always great to be able to join you and to uh, chat football, even though it's a bit of more uh, darkly tinged football conversation today. Yeah, absolutely. Right, Rob. Uh, if you don't follow Rob Harris on Twitter or anywhere, how dare you? Please make sure that you follow him. He's been on top of everything, including as part of the intro that I mentioned, of course, uh, you know, the repercussions from a football perspective after Russia's invasion of Ukraine, the ongoing conflict and uh just uh we're gonna just begin with updates everybody as of right now as we tape uh, the german coach marcus gistel has resigned as locomotive moscow uh manager uh, has done it in protest over russia's invasion of ukraine of course we know uh what's happening to those teams have they've been suspended of course from action by uefa and adidas suspends partnership with russian football federation but rob i wanted to obviously begin and kind of just you know, setting the scene once again, because FIFA and UEFA finally have suspended Russia. It was kind of a backtrack after suggesting that they were going to play games in neutral venues. No anthem should be played. It was kind of the similar thing, or it was the similar repercussions that IOC did in terms of uh, Russian athletes uh, with the Olympics, etc. But after so much pressure and reconsidering, I guess, FIFA has now suspended Russia from action as well as UEFA. And this obviously includes as well the European Women's Championship as well. If you're watching this on YouTube, you can see it. Talk to me a little bit more about this. How did it come about? Sort of the backtracking in itself. And, and where are we in terms of FIFA and UEFA? Yeah, as it stands now, Russian national teams, club teams, they're all barred from football competitions. And it was a bit of a slow walk to get to this process. And FIFA really did draw a lot of criticism for days due to their uh, indecision, perhaps their dithering over it, when it wasn't the media in any way necessarily alone building this pressure. It was the FAs of Europe. It was particularly Poland, Sweden, the Czech Republic saying they did not want to play Russia, they, you know, they refused to play them. And of course, Poland had that World Cup qualifier scheduled for a month's time. It was originally due to be in Moscow. Poland said, please, could we have it on a neutral venue? FIFA seemingly didn't respond to that. Then they ratcheted up the uh, demands. They said, actually, we're not going to play Russia at all. That was on Saturday. And yet 
FIFA met on Sunday, and the outcome of that was Russia play on as long as you're at a neutral venue and you don't use your flag and you don't use your anthem and uh, you actually don't call yourself Russia, but you could still call yourself the uh, Russian uh, football union team. The FIFA Bureau, it was that took that decision. We're used to so many different bodies across the game. The Bureau is made up of the six confederation presidents and the FIFA president, Gianni Infantino. And it took really just minutes for that decision to be not backed by Poland, which was absolutely aghast that uh, it had been ignored when it had said it didn't want to play Russia. Then on Monday, early evening, we had the decision from FIFA and UEFA jointly that the suspension of Russia would be in place. What was perhaps most interesting about that announcement is there was actually no explanation in it technically as to why it had been taken. There was no quote from any named official, no actual reason given. What it did follow was the International Olympic Committee saying earlier on Monday, advising all sports to bar Russia from international competitions. It's just, you know, we were talking before taping, uh, you know, how in six days it feels so much has gone on and and yet this continues to develop. Let me ask you something here, Rob. I mean, it seems obviously, as we mentioned in the intro, there are more important things in life than football, of course, the atrocities that are happening in Ukraine. But, you know, we have seen the ripple effect. This seems, from a FIFA perspective, an unprecedented move because wars have been fought before without any kind of intervention from FIFA. In fact, not so much as ignoring it, but, you know, taking, you know, some kind of, not advantage of it, but, you know, sort of not, I wouldn't call it as much as uh, making advantage of a controversy, but they've never done anything you know, in, in the past, why was it different this time? Public pressure, IOC taking measures at the beginning with FIFA. What do you think it was? Yeah, and it has set a huge precedent as well because there will be other conflicts going forward. There are other ongoing conflicts around the world that people are starting to point out. Why isn't this country being suspended? Why isn't that country being suspended? We are used to FIFA suspending nations. Zimbabwe have been suspended recently. Often it's for things like government interference and i always wondered if that would be the grounds for suspension actually of russia some you know indication of you know the leadership of the rfu and as the russian football union but no precise detail here what really actually was influential this was the politicians in terms of uefa and fifa and even on day one of the war last week emmanuel macron was in contact with uh, Alexander Sheffrin at UEFA. So it was reaching the levels of the French president, particularly, I believe, seeing how sport was a prestige thing for Russia. The status of holding something like the Champions League final was something that uh, caused concern. Uh, the fact is the Champions League final is the event that unites Europe as a television event uh, along with Eurovision. So that was one of the early decisions to take. And UEFA, of course, did decide to remove the Champions League final from St. Petersburg this May and take it to Paris instead. And that was actually quite a swift decision, but also yeah. easier to take because you're just moving the venue. You're not actually kicking out teams at that point. And you could always return to Russia another year, as we've seen with Turkey being uh, the host for the last two seasons, but then changed on, on both occasions. And still, they are awaiting their turn to host a, a Champions League final. So that was an easier decision to make. And yet the, the pressure was growing for them to decide the fate of Russian teams. And in all this as well, the, the conversations often focused on the punishment, suspending Russia, banning their teams from competition. But at the heart of this, 
is the fact this war denies Ukrainian athletes, Ukrainian players and teams the right to be in action. The Ukrainian league was suspended last week for one reason only, the aggression of uh, Russia. Shakhtar Donetsk have not been able to play at the home stadium since 2014 for one reason. It was being shelled by Russian-backed separatists uh, in the Donbass region. So this is what the war, the fighting has done. It's denied those players the right to compete. And UEFA in particular have spent time in recent days trying to work on evacuating players out of Ukraine, those who were um, stuck there, those we've seen from Shakhtar playing elsewhere in Ukraine in recent years taking to the bomb shelters, uh, to, you know, evacuating to, to, to basements, effectively, that they are in uh, uh, Kiev. So that has been, you know, the humanitarian and welfare concern against the backdrop of all of these talks about what happens to a football team. And, uh, you know, as it stands now, Russia obviously now ostracised from the world of football. Yeah, tragic news indeed. You mentioned, of course, the impact it has on Ukrainian citizens, including the athletes and the players. I wonder, could we see individual athletes, Russian ones, Denis uh, uh, Cheryshev, for example, also being banned, do you think? It's looking like it's very much focused on Russian teams and uh, the Russian national side at this moment, allowing them to continue playing for their clubs outside of Russia. It's probably more of a focus than this on the world of tennis, actually. Does tennis allow the stars, the Russian stars to continue playing, yeah. tennis being obviously particularly individual sport and they're not competing as Russia um, as often. So sports will now be grappling with this. The ruling from FIFA and UEFA relates to national teams. The advice from the IOC also relates to those athletes competing under the flag of Russia. So it might be more of a technicality how they are competing at these non-footballing events. And we have things like the uh, the Paralympics still to come as well at the end of this week starting. Uh, it's something to note even all around this is Russia are now out of qualifying for the Qatar World Cup unless something dramatically changes in the next few weeks. Russia as a team was actually going to be potentially banned anywhere from this World Cup or certainly not competing as Russia because Russia is already subject to world anti-doping sanctions. So that's why at the Olympics in uh, Beijing and in Tokyo, they were competing as the ROC, the Russian Olympic Committee team, because they can't be known as Russia due to the ongoing uh, sanctions. What are they for? Not even for the actual doping scheme that was in place particularly, as we all know, around the 2014 Sochi Olympics and other sporting events too, they were being punished for the cover-up of the cover-up. They were obstructing the investigations in recent years, the attempt to fully uncover the extent of the, the laboratory manipulation um, and uh, samples being tampered with of uh, athletes. So that was why Russia was being subjected to this ban, because it corrupted sport. It was cheating on a, on a large scale, the sports world. Now we have the additional layer of a renewed aggression of the state itself. So, so much distrust of Russia in the sports world, legitimately from investigations, and now this uh, military aggression. And the last World Cup was in Russia in 2018, which is, you know, unbelievable to think uh, that because it wasn't that long ago, of course. I, I wanted to ask you about the relationship between Infantino and Putin, because of it, it has been visible at the very least, you know, sitting together at the World Cup, et cetera. We all know, you know, that they were the host. And of course, there is controversy of that too, but we won't get into that. I I'm more interested in Infantino's point of view, perhaps the reluctance to call out Putin. Well, what is the nature at the very basis of it? What is the nature of the relationship? 
Yeah, and it's what we expect of a sports leader and a national leader. And too often when he's in the orbit of a national leader, particularly sometimes those more authoritarian-leaning ones, he displays misjudgments of, of his own character by not dealing with that just purely as a business-like relationship, delivering the event. And let's remember, he inherited the 2018 World Cup. It was a vote that took place in 2010. He'd only been UEFA General Secretary for a year at that point, and he only became FIFA President in 2016 when everything was well advanced. And yeah. we were two years into the um, annexation of Crimea and the... Um, you know, the Russian back separatist involvement and in uh, Donbass region as well. Under So that was something that FIFA hadn't addressed. But it was his effusive praise of, Jean, of Vladimir Putin, not just meeting him, but actually saying we're on the same team and praising how this is a new Russia and effectively saying everyone's got Russia wrong completely and overlooking not only the aggressive moves in taking over territory in Ukraine, but also in 2018, we already had the doping investigations at this point. We already had Professor Richard McLaren. We already had um, all the, you know, the details emerging from the manipulation of sports. And we had Rodchenkov, the former um, anti-doping official to whistleblower, who was actually one of the masterminds involved in actually implementing the doping. And yet still Gianni Infantino would not criticize Russia. And, you know, he received this order of friendship medal in uh, 2019, I believe it was a year after the World Cup from Vladimir Putin. Again, perhaps he could have maintained a distance. It might have been seen as a snub had he, you know, rejected it. But so often his language around uh, Putin and I actually put it to him a few days before the end of the World Cup final in 2018 in Moscow at the closing press conference when he talked about being on the same team as Putin uh, of Russia. And I said, do you think these people would agree? The victims of MH17, the, the plane shot down by Russians over Ukraine in 2014, the victims of, um, you know, the, the annexation of uh, Crimea. Those what did he who, say? Well, he completely dodged it about the role of sport <laughs> and the power of sport. And, uh, you know, I returned to the theme last week at the press conference, asking him if he regretted any of his sort of tone, his language uh, around um Vladimir Putin. And and we just have to look, I think, and social media is not in any way a complete barometer of public opinion, but just look at it over the last week. And Infantino's own relationship with Putin has brought regular football fans out there posting images of him so close to him and, and you know, revisiting some of those uh, comments that he made. And yeah, it's the receipts are there. Work. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah no. Uh, so let me ask you this before we move on. Uh, just you know, I guess this is more opinion based, but assessing Infantino himself, because we all know, of course, what happened with Seth Blatter as well, you know, uh, his predecessor. Do you think uh, that Infantino at this point has done a better or worse job than him? Where are we heading with FIFA? Because we're reading so many things, our friend Filippo Claire, maybe the dismantling of the organization itself. That's neither here nor there in terms of what we're talking for Russia and the invasion of Ukraine. But what do you make of Infantino's role so much? Because I, I, you know, it seems to me that this is a crucial moment right now, definitely in a World Cup year as well, uh, heading to Qatar. Yeah, I mean, the sense is he doesn't often learn from his mistakes or divisiveness when he manages to split various parts of European football and other and South American football with his decision-making. We've seen it with the Biennial World Cup. Um 
which has managed to anger so many parts of the world with his attempt to double the frequency of the tournament, seemingly disregarding the protest, probably badly presenting the plans as well in terms of how if you're trying to build a consensus and to set out the merits of the argument, which actually are around the need to transform the international match calendar anyway, of which it's a legitimate discussion, of which it looked like he was coming forward at that with the solution as he saw it first, which immediately antagonised so many. And yet he'd had issues in the past, various other uh, things he tried to implement, like a global Nations League, a bigger Club World Cup, and the way he presented those even to his own council cause fractures and divisions because he was presenting these as a fait accompli, demanding they sign them. And in part, it was like the financing was around that cause concern. And more recently, then as well now, we start to sort of look at his own actions around the Middle East, around Saudi Arabia. And again, not just going to meet these people to try to facilitate what is best for a particular moment or football, but actually appearing in a Saudi PR video praising the state at the same time as you've got human rights groups expressing deep concern about Mohammed bin Salman, particularly linked to the um, murder of Jamal Khashoggi in the Turkish consulate in Istanbul in 2018. And it's those judgment calls and about those associations, which, you know, do create concern. But as we assess the, the bigger picture of how should a football fan look at FIFA now and Gianni Infantino versus the Sepp Blatter era, undoubtedly measures have been put in place to try to clean up some of the, uh, you know, the things that led to the, the widespread corruption and the arrests at the FIFA hotel in Zurich in 2015. And they claim to have put better business, financial checks in place, but the power is still there. Uh, you know, the FIFA reform plan of 2015 suggested a diminished role for the FIFA president and a greater role for the secretary general. But uh, Infantino, who was part of that recommendation committee, before he even knew the path would be opened up to the FIFA presidency by Michel Platini being toppled, well, you know, he's kept all the power, he's diminished the status of the secretary general, Fatma Samora. And this is where so many of the sort of questions of his leadership come into play in terms of his accumulation of power and that sort of projection of it. Um, he does point to the US DOJ telling the world and FIFA that you are a transformed body. But um, so many missteps, so many sort of misjudgments, uh, not really a, an inclusive presidency in terms of trying to bring the world together, although he would see it as actually vested interest in the place of Europe, uh, thwarting his attempts to make the game more global. Uh, one of his most curious phrases more recently is like he wants to make football truly a global sport. I think most people would actually agree the only truly global sport already is football. Yeah, <laughs> I don't know what the point of that one is, but yeah, to your point, uh, very quickly, I wanted to ask you about UEFA's Alexander Sheffrin and his own point of view. Obviously, UEFA member nations are united in opposition to the Russian invasion and also uh, as well the decision uh, to cut ties with Gazprom. Uh, how, how significant do you think that is? Uh, and, you know, will it last, I guess? Because obviously... You know, much of it or all of it is in accordance to what's happening right now with Russia and Ukraine. Yeah, well, as it stands now, the UEFA Executives Committee does feature a Russian, Dukov, who is a Gazprom executive. So UEFA hasn't fully cut ties with Gazprom, yet it has cancelled the sponsorship. Uh, even a week ago at the Champions League games, we saw the Gazprom adverts there. A lot of people raising sort of slight 
alarm and you know disquiet and unease the fact Gazprom still had a high-profile status at Champions League games, even as uh, Russian troops were amassing on the border, preparing to go in on their Thursday. It took some days for UEFA to work out a way of, you know, deciding the lawyers to cancel that contract. And, you know, now they have this issue still of the uh, Gazprom executive on the executive committee. But, you know, they were swift in taking the Champions League final off St. Petersburg. Uh, you know, Alexander Sheffin has had meetings over the years with Vladimir Putin. We don't necessarily hear him sort of lavishing that praise in public, uh, you know, it's those images we see. And it's one of those latest issues that UEFA have had to try to deal with uh, just a year, less than a year after the Super League breakaway attempt that he managed to sort of quash and to thwart is, you know, front and centre, certainly, Alexander Sheffrin in trying to, in having to deal with these far, you know, bigger matters at times or, or matters that actually just go beyond football. And this has certainly been a challenging moment and you know they've still got a decision to make over the women's european championship because if this suspension does stay in place until july then russia will be banned from taking up their place uh, in england for the women's euros uh, the fact is actually the the statements from ua from fifa don't actually name russia directly being booted out of world cup qualifying or the women's euros yet it's in part assumed in part briefed in the sense of poland are going to get a buy into the next round but they do leave that slight area open, I would say, for actually the situation to change, although it doesn't look that hopeful at the moment that uh, there's any sign of de-escalation. Yeah, and obviously from the women's perspective, England, the host, has said, no way we are playing you. So you would think that it would be a bit of a puzzle to have the host welcome them when they don't want to in the first place. We're here with Rob Harris, who's all over, of course, uh, these uh, very urgent and very important news uh, as uh, the ripple effect of football due to Russia's invasion of Ukraine. We're going to take a break here at Kegolasso. When we come back, we'll we'll focus a little bit more on things from a Premier League perspective, including, of course, Chelsea and uh, Roman Abramovich. So, Kegolasso, Rob Harris, LME, we'll be right back. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Mom deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Welcome back, everybody. Kigo Lasso here. We are discussing uh, the impact that uh, Russia's invasion of Ukraine has had on, on the game. And uh, Rob, I wanted to talk a little bit about Roman Abramovich. Obviously, you know, these are developing news and uh, we have to be careful about exactly, you know, how these are being uh, presented and also, you know, judging it based on uh, all the statements or at least the multiple statements that Chelsea has already come out with. Uh, let me ask you straight away, just because one of the first ones was obviously that statement regarding about Roman Abramovich leaving uh, the stewardship and care uh, of Chelsea under their, their foundation. What effect, if any, 
does his relinquishing stewardship and care of Chelsea have on the club? Well, what's the latest on that? Well, the best way of looking at it is who owns Chelsea Football Club at the moment? Rowan Abramovich. Has anything changed in terms of the ownership or control of Chelsea Football Club since the weekend? No. So there's a lot of questions raised from that statement that dropped out of the blue on Saturday night. Well, I say out of the blue, the pressure had been growing, led from the British Parliament for Bromwich to sell Chelsea. So there was some uh, pressure on him to actually act and say something. And it seemed his attempt to distance himself from the club and perhaps to take the heat immediately off him was to say that uh, he would be handing over the um, the care of the club, the stewardship of the uh, the club to um, the, the trustees' foundation board. And yet it was something that was presented to the trustees and we still haven't actually heard from them that they actually accept it. And who are these trustees? Well, actually, the chair of the trustees is uh, Bruce Buck, who's also chairman of uh, Chelsea Football Club, also Emma Hayes is on the trustees. She's the women's team manager. We've also got the financial director of Chelsea. So there is not some great uh, distancing of Chelsea from the existing structures by having this uh, foundation board in place running the club. And even then, we don't know actually the, the precise wording of what this means because the way he phrased it, which is the stewardship and care of the club being placed with the foundation board. Well, these aren't legally enforceable terms. They're not defined in British law in terms of how you run a company. Bromwich did not say in this statement on Saturday that he would take no part in decision-making. He would be nothing to do with any decisions. And the vagueness meant that actually it's still being brought up in the British Parliament uh, on the day we're recording. The fact is one of the MPs still talking about Abramovich needing to sell the club. He previously said in the House of Commons last week, uh, referencing Abramovich being of interest to the government due to his links to the Russian state, and his public association with corrupt activity and practices from which would deny wrongdoing over his wealth and his business practices. But this was said using parliamentary privilege, in which means MPs have the freedom to be able to make these accusations uh, but without fear of consequence legally and allows them to be able to discuss openly in Parliament things that are of concern to them. And we also heard from this MP that apparently Bromwich is looking to sell homes in London, which, uh, you know, suggests he's trying to divest his business interests. But the Charity Commission in England, it's a regulator looking after and, and regulating charities, is looking into this plan to hand over the stewardship and care of the club to the trustees. And the trustees have, to, have also asked for them to look into the matter as well, because, you know, it's not a simple thing. And as it stands now, Chelsea themselves have said nothing as a club about what this means. We did actually hear from Chelsea on Sunday about what they called the conflict in Ukraine. Um, they, it didn't mention Russia, didn't mention the aggressor in it, obviously in their hope for peace and their desire for a resolution. And then another factor in all this was a statement from Roman Abramovich's spokesperson saying that the Ukrainian side, crucial term side, um, had asked for Abramovich to try to help and bring a peaceful resolution to this and that he was obviously uh, willing to be able to help uh, Perhaps some of the headlines extrapolated that too far as believing it was a Ukrainian government request. Maybe it was the government, but we haven't had anything to you know, back that up. We haven't heard who, who necessarily how deep these talks go. Uh, he wasn't seen at those talks in terms of the images that took place that we saw in Belarus between Russia and Ukraine on Monday. And uh, Bromovich has tried to distance himself from politics, distance himself from any 
in influence from Vladimir Putin at all. So unclear exactly how uh, you know he might be able to take on such a role, but certainly Abramovich is front and centre because the British government has been you know talking even increasingly more about sanctions, sanctioning Russian individuals, and uh, Abramovich himself hasn't had the passport since 2018 because in the aftermath of a poisoning that Britain blames on Russia in the English city of Salisbury of a former uh, Russian agent. The British government started to clamp down on wealthy Russians in the UK back then and in that environment. So Bromwich did not seek to renew his visa. Yeah, uh, I mean, there's so much here to to get into. But, you know, in, in connection to one of the points that you just made regarding, of course, uh, his own people, stating that at the request of the Ukrainian side, Abramovich is going to go there to try and figure things out. Let me let me ask you here, because it sounds like it's something between uh, caught between uh, a rock and a hard place, because does, does Abramovich owe it to the world because of this statement? Because it comes from his people. Does he owe it to the world to s- say his stance on what's going on? And with that, can we realistically expect him to either criticize Putin or actually do something from this because it didn't cut, you know, it wasn't a report. It came from his people saying at the request of the Ukrainian side, he's been asked to talk about it, even though to your point, he's been looking to distance himself from politics. What do we expect? Uh, what do you think at least what Abramovich's next steps, I guess? Well, we did hear from the deputy prime minister of Britain, Dominic Raab, who was, Raab, who was asked about, Abramovich not condemning uh, Russia, not condemning Putin. And Dominic Raab said, every right-thinking person should denounce what Putin has done. Abramovich himself was saying through his spokesperson who uh, revealed this about the Ukraine talks that actually, uh, you know, Abramovich is just trying to help. And the, the statement said, considering what is at stake, we would ask for your understanding as to why we have not commented on neither the situation as such nor his involvement. So they're trying to back away from him directly criticising yeah, Putin uh, or indeed Russia at all. And we've seen it from some sports bodies more widely. Um, UEFA from FIFA did actually directly condemn Russia in their statements. Some other sports have just referred to hoping for peace in Ukraine. Some statements actually, if you read them carefully as you watch them in the world of sport, might just refer to hoping for peace in Ukraine and the situation in Ukraine. And it can always give the impression it's some sort of civil uh, war in Ukraine. It only involves Ukraine rather than um, an aggressor in in Russia and actually being the perpetrator of this action. But the focus is on Abramovich, on what happens to his ownership of Chelsea going forward. Is Is he the target of sanctions by the British government? Because it seems sanctions are basically the only main weapon that Britain and the US have since they've indicated they're not going to be taking on Russia militarily. They're not going to put troops on the ground in Ukraine. They're not going to be necessarily putting themselves in any way where they could be shooting down Russian planes or risking any sort of direct military confrontation. So it looks like, apart from supplying financial and logistical help to Ukraine, it is financial means they're trying to strangle Russia and also one means of doing that is uh, wealthy Russians, the oligarchs, the likes of uh, Abramovich, even though Abramovich would deny anything, uh, you know, to do with this and, and, and to be a distant figure from it, that he is in the, uh, you know, he is caught up in it. And we've been hearing from the Chelsea manager, Thomas Tuchel, who's talked about it being a distraction, but clearly is now getting frustrated the fact he is having to take questions. And perhaps that's one of the issues we see particularly in the English Premier League compared with some other leagues or even, you know, other sports, particularly the US sports, is it's the head coach who is often the only 
senior figure at the club who faces the media. Therefore, they get the questions that relate to matters far beyond the pitch because there isn't a GM or a CEO or a chair often sort of facing the cameras to take those questions and quite legitimate ones. And, you know, it can be quite, you know, harsh in a way on the coach. But if they're the only public figure, they'll, you know, they're going to get the questions. Yeah, absolutely. Right. Let me ask you this, because per Forbes, Abramovich could call back a $2 billion loan from the Chelsea side of things. And, you know, should the club get sanctioned? Could we see the club collapse? Do you see that at all? Well, I mean, you know, one of the things talked about are Russian assets going to be seized in England. That's unclear in terms of how that might go going forward. Would Abramovich look to just abandon Chelsea? That seems hard to see at this point. So he'd be calling in the loans uh, of one and a half billion. Would he seek to sell Chelsea? Something his side, you know, tries to say that he's not looking at doing. Well, then, of course, you need a buyer who's going to be willing to take on those loans and also potentially someone who's going to have the financial firepower to maintain the sort of current status of spending and squad replenishment with, with the investment that's there and, you know, the rebuilding of Stamford Bridge eventually, something that actually was put on hold in 2018 amid all that dispute and, and the, the, the poor climate between the UK and Russia after the uh, the poisonings in Salisbury, uh, it sounded the unfavourable investment conditions at the time. So, you know, what sort of owner would he want to sell to? Would he just completely disregard? If he was to sell, could he actually draw the funds from it or would some British government action prevent him even seeing that, uh, uh, you know, that... Um, cash actually flowing back to him so so many un- unanswered questions so many uncertainties so much depending on you know what the government does the the progress of this war and uh, far graver matters in terms of uh, where we are in terms of this conflict yeah no absolutely right uh interesting about his daughter sophia's anti-war instagram post revealing about abramovich wonder if you saw it he said uh, it was a post and it said the biggest and most successful lie of Kremlin's propaganda is that most Russians stand with Putin. Uh, you know, obviously, uh, it's his daughter. It's not Roman Abramovich. It's an Insta post. I wonder what, what that says about the man. Yeah, and what it obviously says about her wanting to distance herself from um, the Putin regime and very much a, a new generation of Russians, uh, you know, not wanting to, you know, thinking about their own futures. And this is a key juncture where probably many people feel that uh, they might be judged on their actions now on what they say now um yeah. she isn't a public figure in any way as i you know believe apart from obviously instagram makes many people public so <laughs> yeah you know, it's challenging to you know t- to demand people make these uh, distancing themselves from putin but she has chosen to do that and you know we do await to see how russia does react more generally in terms of protests it is a you know country where opponents can be clamped down on and it can be an unfavorable uh, atmosphere indeed to, to protest or to challenge Vladimir Putin as he uh, you know has been in charge either as president or prime minister for over uh, two decades now and also just what the reaction would be to Russians being denied their chance to be at a World Cup to see their team taken off the international sports stage which surely when sports has been used by Vladimir Putin so significantly in recent years to elevate the status of the nation, to see Russia denied that competition on the world stage, you know, will be jarring to many people, as well as the financial cost to the Russian states with um, interest rates put up and the ruble struggling. But most importantly, are those um, Russians who won't be returning to their homes because they've died in this conflict, a conflict that Putin started 
on the basis that uh, you know he wants um, you know to reclaim Ukraine, not seeing it as a real state and having these long-held grievances, and that has put Russian soldiers in harm's way. Yeah, and Russian people. We have already seen the protests within the nation itself as well. Um, all right, before we go, there was also, you know, it's it's not just uh, Chelsea Abramovich or anything like that, but there are calls in France to boycott or sanction Monaco, who are also owned by uh, Dmitry Rybolovlev, uh, Russian oligarch, presumably, as well. Anything on that? Yeah, I mean, this just shows how far-reaching and how when you know, businessmen gain these high profile investments that they become the target of the politicians of the wider public discourse. So while you might at some point buy these clubs as a sort of asset that is a status symbol, then actually you do raise your profile as we saw with Abramovich buying Chelsea in 2003, that uh, he was suddenly an international figure in this regard. And, uh, you know, you know, now we, it'll be interesting to see what sort of protests there are greeting Monaco games and what sort of pressure that does put on him. Uh, I mean, you know, there's been sort of varying levels of investment there in recent years. So this just shows how sport is very much the front and centre of the wider reaction to um, this war and also how you actually do punish Russia as a state at this point. And, yeah. you know, as we see increasingly more and more sports as well, choosing to focus on uh, how they react to the Russian state. I mean, it's obviously really unusual in the way this is a football um, show, often talking about the, the highs of things like the Champions League and the joy people get and tactical discussions and debating where players might move to and where the, you know, the transfers might be in the next transfer window. But it just shows the fact that, you know, we can't escape all these um, far graver geopolitical managers when they, when they intersect with football so much when we see money put into football from the oligarchs rightly so rob harris only a few weeks ago we were talking about the return of the knockout stages of the champions league and look how much has happened already before we go rob uh, to your point about you know this reaction was going on you know the the impact i guess of sports washing in the premier league european football does remain pretty high you know we're talking about you know, not just, you know, what's going on right now, but also like the Abu Dhabi, Saudi Arabian impact, Abramovich control of some of the sports' biggest clubs. You know, can the sport unfurl itself from, you know, quote unquote, dirty money, I guess? Where do you see it? Because sometimes I feel, especially the Premier League, you know, turning a blind eye to it. Yeah, obviously far bigger issues over who can own a football club and uh, should you know, there'd be fan control ultimately, even if there was external investment and the Saudi investment in Newcastle, which caused so much alarm, not though from Newcastle fans, because Saudi Arabia now seems to have a huge band of following uh, in the northeast of England and beyond with uh, Newcastle fans, because they're just pleased to have some cash that ended Mike Ashley's regime, uh, or, you know, perhaps the wrong choice were given what we're talking about, you know, his, his, his reign as ownership. And now this sort of investment, which gives them hope if they can stay up in the Premier League this season, that they can kick on and start to to challenge those, uh, you know, more illustrious teams in terms of recent success and in silverware. So they almost overlook that. And some of them say, well, if uh, Qatar have been able to buy Paris Saint-Germain, if Abu Dhabi have been able to invest in Manchester City, why shouldn't we have the right to have our investment too? Why should we have to... 
you know, be denied that opportunity. And, you know, we've had golfers also enticed by Saudi cash in recent weeks and divisions in golf over who accepts and breakaways and you know, just where is the line of morality and where is that red line in the world of sport and uh, how much should human rights and actually the you know, the freedoms in a country and they're clamped down on freedoms and human rights and suppressing them be a factor and, and assessed by sports bodies when they decide whether to approve uh, new owners and how much satisfaction can a fan of a particular club take from success when the, fight, the cash might be tainted in some way and they might be acting as cover for regimes with them um, awful human rights records and how much they're willing to compromise any morals for just pure sporting enjoyment. Yeah, absolutely right. Uh, that's why he's the very best. Uh, he's been all over this. Make sure that you follow him as well at Rob Harris, Associated Press Global Sports Correspondent. Also a fantastic uh, show, Sport Unlocked, uh, with other friends such as uh, Tariq Panja and Martin Siegler as well. Rob Harris, thank you so much for returning to Kego Lasso, my friend. Thank you for all the hard work and all the uh, great, great insight that you have given us today. Great to join you. And the main thing, obviously, hoping for the uh, the, the safety of uh, the people of Ukraine. And hopefully the next time we're talking, it might be on uh, brighter matters in the world of football. I hope so, my friend. And I echo your sentiments. Well said indeed. Thank you, everybody, for being with us. Kigo Lasso Pod on Twitter, YouTube.com, wherever you listen to your pods, at Rob Harris on Twitter, LMHGARAI. We will see you next time. Have a great rest of your week. moments of the UEFA Champions League 24-7. The UEFA Champions League channel is a new 24-hour streaming channel serving non-stop goals, highlights, and full match replays from the world's most prestigious club competition. Reminisce on your favorite moments, legendary players, and brilliant goals with the UEFA Champions League channel streaming around the clock on Pluto TV and the CBS Sports app.